Welcome to Power to the Patients, a LinkedIn Live and podcast series hosted by Power, where clinical research leaders across sponsors, sites, CROs, and patient advocacy groups discuss patient centricity in clinical trials. We explore the bottlenecks in today's system, challenge the status quo, and talk about future opportunities for innovation. Let's dive in. In today's segment of Power to the Patients, we are lucky enough to be joined by Farah. Farah leads patient experience work over at Roche Canada, but I'll, I'll actually give her an opportunity to maybe introduce herself. Tell us a little bit more about uh, what that means. Sure. Thanks, Brandon. And thanks so much for having me on today to talk about you know one of my favorite topics. I'm at Roche Canada and I'm part of our patient experience team. So our team in the organization really looks at how we are embedding and integrating the voices and experiences of patients really at every stage of the life cycle of our products. And what, what are some of like the the initiatives that this team takes on? How, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think we think about it in a variety of different ways. So the first is, you know, as we, part of our team is embedded within the therapeutic areas that we work in. So for those disease areas, for those products, we're really thinking about, you know, where are we in the life cycle of a product? What are the needs and challenges of patients living with these conditions across the country? Where do gaps and barriers exist for those people? And then what can we be doing as an organization to work with patients to create some of those solutions to solve the problems, I think, both at a system level and at a product and therapeutic level? Yeah, gotcha. And you, you mentioned you know, across the, uh, the patient journey. I imagine this spans uh, R&D through to kind of post-marketing, yeah? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think the the evolution of this work, at least from an industry perspective, has really evolved. Historically, we the way we engaged with patients and patient communities was really transactional. We looked at patients who were on our products, for example, and we thought about, okay, what are the their needs at this moment in time. I think where we're going and, and we're on this journey is, you know, how can we engage patients early and systematically, like along that entire patient journey? And as you said, that's exactly what we talk about. You know, we talk about patient journeys. We talk about what happens right from when patients start to feel symptomatic. What does that journey like through the system look like? What does that journey through that disease area look like? And then what are opportunities where things could be going better? And, and what can we be doing to support those? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I want I want to I want to revisit this and um, specifically focus in on R and D clinical operations. A lot of our audience uh, comes from the R and D side of the house. But before we do that, I, I was doing a little bit of background research again and noticed that um, you're now the chair of the Above Brand uh, Patient Council. What mm-hmm. what is that? Tell us a little bit more. 
Yeah, I will. So here at Roche Canada, we engage with or we, we've brought on board a number of patient councils. So patient councils are, you know, one of the ways that we are able to engage directly with patients. We have them in a number of therapeutic areas that we work in. And as you mentioned, we have an above brand uh, patient council, which is comprised of individuals who are patients um, and caregivers and who really we work with to help us get that external perspective on, you know, what are some of the issues and challenges that patients are experiencing out in the system um, and how can we work together on, on solutions? So for example, you know, one of the things we're working with our above brand patient council on right now is embedding a more patient-inclusive culture within our organization. So we're really seeking to understand what are some of those behaviors? What are some of those mindsets of a patient-inclusive culture? What are those specific elements? And how can we embed those uh, throughout the organization? So how can we take... And how can we recognize that it's not just patient experience and, and patient inclusivity doesn't just rest with one function or one group in the organization? but how can we integrate it across everyone and, and everything that we do? Yeah. And let's make it a little bit real for the audience. What, what are some of the examples of things that you know, you've, you've started to see implemented in order to kind of further the patient experience? What, like what are the, the tangible kinds of changes that you're looking for? So one of the examples I can share is um, in the creation, for example, of patient education materials. So, you know, every time we are looking to launch a product, we create a product monograph, right, that gets submitted to regulatory agencies. So there's a section in our product monograph that is actually for patients specifically. And one of the things we did in collaboration with patients, with our regulatory colleagues, and actually with Health Canada is work on revising that section of the product monograph so that it contains plain language. It's in a format that's easier for people to understand. It helps them understand, for example, the side effects of their medication, the dosing, the mechanism of action, you know, and and make it really real for people Mm -hmm. so that it is written in a way that they can understand. So now going forward, every time we put a product monograph together, we are able to take that information and articulate in a way that is understandable for patients. Yeah. And is the set of things that you would communicate in patient education different in Canada versus other geographies? Help me understand the, the kind of geographic element to this. It's a good question. Um, yes. So the short answer is yes, it's different. Um, you know, in Canada, I think in general, you know, it's a highly regulated industry. In Canada specifically, we cannot directly advertise pharmaceutical products to patients. So what you see, and we see them on U.S. networks, for example, we see the ads for pharmaceutical products come through our Canadian feeds. Um, But in Canada, we actually cannot promote products directly to patients. So there's actually, I think, from my perspective, like an even greater responsibility that we have to make sure that we are helping patients understand clearly the benefits of 
being engaged in their own healthcare journeys and providing that accurate information to patient organizations, to patient communities, so that they can really make informed decisions about their own healthcare. That makes sense. I'd love to maybe go further uh, up the value chain and start sure. talking a little bit about R&D. How do you think about the patient experience and, and the patient's perspective informing the, the R&D side of the world? I think, firstly, it's, a, it's hugely important to think about the patient experience from an R&D and clinical development perspective. You know, I think that there are already ways that we're seeing regulators and other healthcare organizations look for ways that patients are being engaged in clinical development and clinical research. I think first and foremost, it's If we understand what the needs of the people living with the diseases and the conditions are, we can create better clinical trials, right? We can, so it's not just in the protocol development, it's not just in the actual trial design, it's also in understanding, you know, geographically, where are the patient communities that are being impacted? Like, where do they live? How can we ensure that when we actually then have a trial, we are looking at where can we place the trial? Which sites can we physically place the trial at so that they become more accessible for patients with those conditions to access? You know, I think we've seen how including patients in clinical trial development, it it doesn't just sound and feel like the right thing to do. But when we do that, we know that there's a greater chance for there to be less protocol amendments. We know that there's faster time to recruitment if we engage patients in the process. And we know that, you know, the long-term impact of this means that these products can get to patients faster if we integrate patient experiences right from the beginning. It all sounds like uh, perfectly logical and reasonable. Um, right. like, so why why not? Like why like <laughs> why why yeah. not do that? It's a great question. I mean, I think in my mind, like one of the biggest barriers is speed because I think, and I'm really interested in your perspective on this too, right? It's whenever we get, you know, and I'll use Canada as the example here, when we get access to a clinical trial, the objective is like, how quickly can we recruit patients? How quickly can we get that first patient on therapy? It's how fast can we move this to the next stage? And so I think sometimes when we think about how to integrate patient experiences, that takes time to do, right? So sometimes there's this need to balance how fast do we need to do this versus how are we going to make sure that we're doing this in the right way um, so that we don't face barriers down downstream? And I'm curious around, you know, your experience from this perspective around that balance and, and how you ensure that, you know, patients are being included and, and what you've seen with that need to go quickly. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. I think what you touched on there makes a lot of sense. I think there's this, like, there's this rush to get to the first patient in, right? right? Like to get things started. And sometimes I think in, in rushing to get things started, it's easy to um, ignore, okay, what are the like, or, or easy to kind of punt the problems of like, how long is this going to take like down the road right. um, into the future, right? So when like the, when everybody's like oriented around, okay, we just need to get our first sites activated and like our first patients like started. Okay, yes. that's great. We, we do everything that we can to kind of go quickly there. 
but then maybe we miss out on some of the things that actually drive the like the longer term like success success attractiveness of participating and like reducing right. the barriers to participate and all that kind of stuff starts to become an issue you know halfway through when we're realizing oh these are the barriers like in right. the study and sometimes you know I've been really curious sometimes about why like first patient in or site activation, you know, like why those kind of milestones are so critical because sometimes you can get that first patient in, for example, but then the delay to get subsequent patients takes very long. And and I think this is where, and I'll call it, you know, like the science of patient inclusivity, like it's still new. And Mm. I don't know that we are doing, um, I don't know how much is being done rather around measuring the impact of this, right? Because I think sometimes we're also trying to balance, like we want to see things happen quickly, right? There's this need to, show impact and show results. But from a clinical trial perspective, you know, are we really measuring what is happening when we are doing that early engagement? And are we comparing it against, you know, previous examples where we see, where do we see delays in the process? Mm-hmm. And when we start to do that early engagement, are we actually eliminating or shortening those barriers over time? Um, so I think that's new. And I think we haven't really seen the true impact of that, which I, I really believe is there. Yeah. I'm kind of curious. Have you, have you done an assessment, quantitative analysis or qualitative analysis as to you know, the top barriers for patients as they think about trials? Is that part of the, the kind of scope of work that you, you look at? It's definitely the scope of colleagues of mine that do this kind of work in um, inpatient partnership across our global organization. I think that it's probably very specific and dependent on the patient population, on the disease area, for example, right? And I think that is where we're trying to go. Um, I think very generally speaking, we're aware of the barriers, right? You know, like geography, for example, you know, where people live in the country, how many trial sites we get, the protocol design and accessibility. Um, But I think when you dive really deep into what therapeutic area are we talking about? What patient population specifically are we recruiting for? You know, that's where you, I think, when you go through the process of creating those patient journeys and mapping out, you know, very clearly where gaps exist specific to that population, then you can really uncover like, okay, for this subgroup of patients, we know different things about where they are and what those barriers are. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. um, when when we, we speak to patients every week, actually, over at Power, and um, we try to unearth this, and I think one of the things we're finding is that there are really three questions that patients are asking about trials mm-hmm. when they're considering them. The first question is, why should I do this instead of what I'm doing today? Yeah. <laughs> right? Is there data that suggests that this is going to be more effective? Is there data on the safety that should make me more comfortable? Mm-hmm. Like, is there science or credibility that, like, papers that have been published that uh, I should be considering that helps inform that this is a better choice for me? Right? It's like right. prove to me that this is like a product worth trying. Right? Yeah. That's the first thing. The second thing is then, does this interfere with my life too much? You know, so this idea of protocol design. How many visits? How invasive? Is this going to be like? Is the like? Is the effort worth that potential benefit that we've kind of cleared right. in the first session? And then the third one, and especially in the US, but I think uh, all over the world, is like logistically, is this feasible for me? 
am I close enough to a site? Do I have the reimbursement for travel or reimbursement to kind of cover childcare or whatever? Um, in, do I get time off work, for example? Do I get time yeah. off work? Does my insurance cover this? Right? Like how much yeah. of this does my insurance cover? How much is this, of this is out of pocket? Um, can I actually right. participate at all? So the, like, what we found is like, these are kind of like the three questions that go through a patient's uh, or a person's mind as they like, really look and consider research. I'm kind of curious, as, as we kind of like think about that, like that kind of framework, like are there any like, specific initiatives that you've kind of seen um, internally that, that kind of talk to this or um, a way that it's been laid out? Yeah, so I think that, for example, this piece on, you know, why should I do this? Uh, I think fundamentally that is, that's probably the one of the biggest questions that I think we hear from people is, is even the, the misperceptions perhaps around like clinical trials. Um, and, you know, the concept, I think, that still is pervasive around like, Am I being a guinea pig? Like, why should I do this? Why should I take a risk, right? My son is actually in a clinical trial right now. And it it made it really real for me because I had to think through all of these mm. things, you know, like, sure, yeah. why should we do this, especially making a decision on behalf of somebody as a caregiver? Um, and again, going through all those logistical questions around the feasibility of it, around does it interfere with my life? Because... It's a big time commitment as well, just those visits. And so I think we've done we've done work, I think, at all of these levels. For example, you know, why should we do this? We've done education with patient communities around what it means to participate in clinical trials, um, why people should be involved, um, what this actually means, and addressing some of those specific questions. And then, you know, I think working with sites around, does this interfere with my life and, and working through those questions. And so, for example, you know, I worked in, in a rare disease space a few years ago around in a condition called Angelman syndrome. We actually worked with the patient community in that case to really understand, you know, what were the needs of that patient community? Where did they live? You know, did it make sense if we placed a trial site in one city? Would it make sense for them to actually go there physically? And, and how often would it make sense for them to go? You know, what were the requirements? What, what, what were some of those protocol um, elements that would have made it easier or less easy for them to go. So I think it's it's happening on a very therapeutic area by therapeutic area perspective, which I think is the right approach because otherwise we get we get caught up in in those generalizations, mm-hmm. right? And and then we we tend to paint all patients and all patient communities with the same brush, which I think I'm encouraged to see that we're we're not doing that so much anymore, right? We really are looking at this on a therapeutic area, patient population trial basis as we go. One thing that we've you know, spoken a lot about uh, offline is this idea of um, where do patients go for information today and like how are patients, you know, like using the internet to, to try to take control Correct. of their own <laughs> situation? What are you, what yeah. are you seeing there? What trends are you seeing? We're seeing that patients are absolutely using digital tools to help them and to understand 
what's happening in their in their disease uh, areas and on their own journeys. I think specifically, I've seen Facebook be a huge resource for patients, especially in the rare disease space, where you almost have because you can have gated communities, right? You can have closed communities of of people who are living with the condition or who are caregivers who are sharing their experiences, who are answering questions for each other, who are incredibly well educated on their own condition and their own diseases and and sometimes who are proactively taking that information to their HCPs to drive the diagnosis in some cases. So I think we're definitely seeing people use social media as a resource. And I think it, so that's one place they're going. I mean, patient organizations, you know, formal patient advocacy groups, I think are also a resource for people around where to go for disease information and for health information. And then I think, you know, organizations like yours, I think that, you know, you're really, from what I've seen, your organization is really making this information accessible to people. And it's accessible in a variety of ways, like the way you get it and also the way the information is presented. That really speaks to the the growing issue of like health literacy, right? How are we making information accessible, digestible? How are we helping people understand like, what does this mean for me? And how then can this impact like my day-to-day life? Yeah, you know, one thing that we found is that because we've just made it so easily accessible right it's just a website and there's no logins if you need it like if you want to go in there's no like password requirements there's like none of that kind of stuff we're seeing not only like patients and caregivers using it we're seeing physicians use it too as an Mm -hmm. alternative to using clinicaltrials.gov like i just i just shared a story uh yesterday on linkedin where i learned that there was a doctor in croatia uh that was like using it to like to look for trials on behalf of their patient and they just kind of stumbled upon it i guess (laughs) um and it's, it's kind of amazing what happens on the internet when you have a superior kind of like user experience it is for sure and you know i think especially in Canada for so long, like we've, we've relied on the physicians being that intermediary, right? Between what we can share and what the patients need to know, for example. And I think that it's like, yes, physicians are still a great resource to their patients, but they also have other, you know, barriers that exist for them and other pressures where they can't always share the information you know, the, the the scope of information, the depth of information that a patient needs. So how can we work on other ways to make information really accessible to people? And in, in some respects, like give that power back to people, right? Like yeah. make them feel like they're that journey is in their control. And I think that we've seen so much data around, you know, what empowered patients can do and and how that leads to better outcomes. So I think that's hugely important to us. Yeah. How do how like how do you find empowered patients today? What's the um, what's the approach? There's lots of different approaches. So I think first, you know, we both locally and globally, we have relationships with lots of established patient organizations. Many of those are run by empowered patients themselves. You know, many of them have a number of patients that are part of the organization that are open to sharing their experiences. I think we also look at 
the physician community to be supportive of whether they know of, whether they see those patients in their practice that they can easily identify. And, and that's another channel. And then I think this, this concept of doing that you know, social media listening and understanding and making ourselves aware of who are the patients out in social spaces that are talking about their experiences, that are sharing, that are connecting with others like them. I think the empowered patient today looks very different from empowered patients, you know, when I started in the industry like 10 or 15 years ago, where you had to be part of a formal patient organization, you know, many people that we work with now don't identify with or feel like they can't relate to those formal patient organizations. So Mm. they're building communities of their own, you know, in social spaces and are open to, to connection and, and to that sort of thing. Yeah. So, so here's, here's the segment where I shamelessly ask for your, uh, um, for your advice. Um, (laughs) If you were like, yeah, it's like if, if you could like will us to do anything at all, what would you have us do to have the most impact? I'm kind of curious what you think about that. So I'd say, how can we communicate that as patients, we are not passive recipients of care, right? That how do we, if we can uncover and unlock the ways for people, especially diverse and underrepresented communities to have access to education and feeling empowered, like I feel really passionately about that ability to give people back that opportunity to be informed about their own healthcare decisions, to feel like they are in control of that. So what can we do to give that power back to people and make them feel like everything they do can impact their own journey? It is it is not up to the system, the physician, the, you know, those are all players in this journey, but you're driving the car. Um, and, you know, that's where I feel like, how can we, and, and I don't know the answer to this, Brandon. So I think like I've kind of maybe answered your question with a question around those are the populations those are the people that that we need to figure out how to reach. And so I think, but I think that starts with so many like systemic issues that you kind of touched on before, right? That how are we, how are those people accessing primary care? How are those people accessing health information? How are those people getting time off work to go to appointments and that sort of thing? I think there's a whole host of more questions that we need to figure out how to solve together. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that like we think about a lot is how did Zillow become Zillow? Because truly, you know, what they've done is they've become the go-to brand for right. housing information. And I guess maybe not so relevant in Canada. What is it? Right. Realtor.com or something. Yeah. Um, or, oh, you uh, got it. That, you know the lingo. CA, Realtor.ca. Like in, in certainly in the US, they've, they've democratized kind of housing information. And in doing so, anybody who's kind of interested in learning about you know, home ownership and taking a look at what's out there and just, you know, passively browsing like for entertainment mm-hmm. almost sometimes can like knows like that's the place to go. And along the way, one of the interesting things that's happened, right, is that um, it wasn't just for the consumers, like the home buyers, it's also become equally powerful tool for the brokers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and now brokers are sending their their kind of clients lists like Zillow listing, right, for homes and, and houses. Right. Um and one of the things we think about is like, is that the path that we eventually get on? 
um, by becoming not only the, the go-to resource for uh, individuals, consumers, patients, um, but then also for HTPs as the de facto platform that they prefer using. And is that kind of like the virtuous circle that right. makes us really, uh, uh, really sticky? Yeah, I think that's a really good way to look at it. And I like the analogy that you used with Zillow. And it always makes me think about, you know, like, how are we making health data accessible to to patients and, and to people? And how are we like, you know, for example, if... And I'll use my parents because my dad has type 2 diabetes, for example. So if he goes to an appointment and asks for his blood work results, for example, right? He gets this printout that makes no sense to him. Yes, he got his health information and he got this data about himself, but he doesn't know what to do with it, what it means, and and now what he should do in his day-to-day life. Right. And so, you know, how are we, how are we like as a community? Because I think the value is how we can all work together, right? To solve some of these, these big challenges. Like how can we make it easy for people to understand what to do, to understand like where to go and also not feel confused by all of the information that's out there. And I guess, have you, you know, you talked about that one case study in Croatia with that physician that's actually using, you know, your tool and, and your site as a way to find out trial sites for, for his patients. And, you know, how have you seen this evolution in terms of not just the openness from, I think, HCPs and, and health professionals, but also at the site level and, and even like at the sponsor level, right? Like, are you seeing a growing interest in collaboration? Are you seeing like the walls come down a little bit and people being more open? And I guess, What's driving that in your mind, and yeah, what, what do you what do you see happening? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think at the end of the day, it all comes down to the fact that patients are using our platform. That's kind of like the indisputable fact. You know, there are tens of thousands of patients using our website every single month to go learning about trials, and that you know consistent flow of new attention, new patients who are interested in learning about research. Like it's proprietary. It's it's on our website. It's on our platform. Um, mm-hmm. And what, what we're seeing is that researchers are really happy to connect with those patients. They're really excited to meet those patients that are nearby and engaged and want to learn more. Right? It's not just the patients that are seeking out information. As you would know, as everybody else um, in this space would know, everyone is trying to recruit faster. Everyone is trying to meet more patients for their studies. Right. So the fact that we have them using our website is really exciting for a lot of folks. Um, mm-hmm. So we've had, you know researchers across 20 of the top 20 academic centers in the U.S. already sign up on our platform and start using it to, to connect with patients. And we see new researchers every like every week. Uh, I just saw somebody sign up from Stanford <laughs> uh, yesterday. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it, it, just, it just happens every week, uh, which is really exciting because you know the, the more we get the word out, the more the people learn about our platform as, as kind of an option to connect with these patients, uh, the more momentum that we have. Yeah, I know that's amazing. And I think it's it's incredible to just even, you know, having gone through clinicaltrials.gov to to even try to navigate that to now what you guys are offering and the the accessibility of it, I think is really incredible. So uh, let's imagine, you know, five years out. What is your wish for how clinical trials are are run, patient recruitment is done, patient engagement? 
um, for research is done? Like in, in five years, if you could change things, how, how do you hope that we, we kind of evolve as an industry? So I really hope that we can almost be able to leverage technology more effectively to be able to tell us, you know, if we know that we are entering a disease area and we know that we need to to look at like trial sites that we're able to very quickly understand like where are the communities of people with this condition living? How can we, how do we have a mechanism to educate and inform them? You know, like almost collectively in real time, you know, we talked to just now about like, it's, it's individual patients, right? It's like one patient at a time. It's, it's one family or caregiver at a time. I mean, I think that's how you build momentum. And so how do we, how do we scale that, right? How do we really look at populations of patients in, in various disease areas? How do we do that, that education on mass? And then how do we, I think part of this is how do we bring patients closer to their journey? How do we have people getting informed about these things like months in advance so that they have that ability to to predict and to to influence where that happens, right? Where we're actually then taking the needs and experiences of patients and we're not saying, oh, where should we go? Let's ask patients that we know ahead of time, you know, that patients are like, have a way to proactively contribute to where that's going and and where they live and, and what they're looking for. And then that's incorporated into how we design them. Yeah, I can, I can imagine a world already where you know, we've got the patients on our website that are looking for research and maybe we're able to kind of collect insights from them, collect feedback for them that informs kind of like the development of the pipeline um, that's coming up next year and having a little bit of, a, of like before deployed like data collection process um, right. that informs, you know, the like the pipeline that's not yet ready. Yeah. Like I could see us, us finding a way to do that um, in a really interesting way. I can almost see it almost as like, maybe this is not the right analogy, but like Tinder for for patients, right? Like how can you look at matching where patients and people are living with a condition that you know you're going to be designing a trial site for or a trial for? And then you're actually seeking that feedback and those insights in real time as you're as you're designing, right? And then you're able to give that feedback also because I think it's one thing to take insights from patients and, and patient communities. But I think we have a responsibility to to take those insights and do something with them, right? And then how are we giving that back to to patients? Yeah. I almost think of it as, you know, the Google search graph where Google knows everything that you're searching online and <laughs> Google can tell advertisers, you yes. know, there are people in this geography that fit this description that are interested in this thing. I can imagine us having, you know, like the like the power search graph where we know, hey. Like there are patients in this geography that are interested in research for this condition, and here's what is important to them, and here's what they're worried about. Mm-hmm. So if you want to engage with this population of people, like in this, like in this city, or across these different cities, this is um, how you should be thinking about uh, designing that research. Right, and then to go further downstream with that, you know, these are patients who, or people who, for example, if they, if there are certain policies that need to be in place for people to access, for example, like time off work, insurance coverage, childcare, that 
you have a proactive way to Google can predict that, right? Well, of the of this patient population, and this is, I think, where the future of like AI is going, of this patient population, this percentage of them will require access to, you know, paid time off work or other policies that can then support and create that enabling environment for them to actually get to the trial site and get to the appointments and, and that sort of thing. Sure. Absolutely. Well, hey, that was a, uh, I think that's a strong place for us to close here. Farah, any last words, any last thoughts that uh, you want to impart on uh, on the audience? You know, I think that um, we, we've we seen this space around patient engagement and patient experience like grow so much. And I think I'm personally and also within my organization, like so encouraged to see what's happening um, around the world, around the ways that patients are being engaged um, in in healthcare decision making. And I'm really excited to be part of it. I think that there's so much more for us to do. Like we are on this journey. We've started, but I think, like you said, and, and some of these ideas, like there's so there are so many places for us to go and to take this. And I think that partnership and and collaboration is is the really the way to do that. So I just want to say thank you for for the conversation and just even recognizing like the incredible work that that you guys are doing. Oh, thank you for saying that. This has been this has been so much fun. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your morning to to kind of have this conversation. I know it's running over lunch for you. Um, oh, so again, uh, thank you uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in. If you haven't already, please follow Power on LinkedIn. Sign up for our live events and engage with us in the conversation. We hope to have you join us next time on Power to the Patients. Take care.